0: This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leads Art Week. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm your host, Jeremy Bergeron, the Vice President of Media Strategy at Mission.org. And this is the show where twice a week, you'll get VIP access into the hearts and minds of some of the most influential marketers in the world. On Marketing Trends, we'll do two things. We'll go deep on a human level, and we'll go even deeper on the nitty gritty of what makes for the most successful marketers and strategies today. I'm glad you're here. Now let's get into it. Let's be honest, content is king. And the challenge today is finding ways to make that content not just resonate with people, but also more helpful by giving users a community that not only creates a lasting impression, but one they can benefit from. Wes KO knows content, and she created and co-founded Maven, her answer to improving the online course education experience for instructors and for students. Paralleling the development of the technology, along with curating a powerful roster of instructors, Maven has already seen financial success before the platform has even hit the market. This reflects Wes's nuanced approach to modern content creation. While quality still reigns supreme, the days of begging for subscribers might be trending downwards in favor of a more hyper-personalized approach.
1: Like and subscribe is dead because people used to need hundreds of thousands of followers to be able to make a living online. Things are shifting so that if you're a creator these days, you can make a pretty healthy living from a smaller audience of true fans who love what you do and wanna engage with you and are willing to invest more in your content because they find it so valuable.
0: And what is it that consumers are valuing these days? Community. The days of online interactions are on the rise, which means those users are looking for new ways to flex their creative muscles. Wes knows how to curate these communities. And in this episode of Marketing Trends, She delves into the way she approaches hiring, growing and developing her business, as well as shares some of the nuggets of wisdom she gleaned from her time with Seth Godin. Wes has so many insights. Be prepared to take a few notes and learn a lot. Here we go. All right, everybody, welcome to Marketing Trends. This is your host, Jeremy Bergeron. I'm super stoked for our guest today. We've got the co-founder of Maven, Wes K.O. in the house. Wes, welcome to the show. Hey, Jeremy. Hey, everyone. Super excited to have you, Wes. As I was mentioning before, you know, every time someone sends me on our team, they send me a little email, okay, who's coming on the show? I immediately go into research mode. Who is this person? Why are they so amazing? If you Google West K.O., you'll find a ton of amazing things about this human being. And I love that you've done a ton of shows. You've created a ton of content. You're in the content game. And so I'm honored to dive in with you. I just want to start with a little bit of context. Like, where are you from?
1: I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area, originally born and raised. From the Bay. Okay. I lived in New York for a couple of years, and now I'm based in Toronto.
0: Oh, you're in Toronto. Okay, nice. Now, big family, small family growing up?
1: I have an older brother and a younger sister. So I'm the middle child. Take with it what you will.
0: Middle. Yes. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, we share that in common. I have an older sister and two younger brothers. So nice. I'm in that middle, I'm middle spot with you. What's changing in your life right now?
1: Ooh, let's see. I bought a house recently. So home maintenance, fixing a leak right now. So, you know, fun stuff there. Oh. With Maven, we're growing really quickly. So we're hiring a bunch and looking for really amazing talent to join us for some key roles. So that's changing. And what else? I'm preparing for our upcoming Maven Course Accelerator, which is a three-week course that I teach. This is the fourth time that I'm teaching it. That's starting next month. Uh, And we're making a bunch of changes between the summer cohort and and the fall one coming up. So making a lot of curriculum edits, changes to the structure, making it better and more streamlined.
0: It's awesome. So you have this you know, co-founder slash kind of head of marketing role at Maven. You've been a part of some really cool things before, uh, Alt-MBA with Seth Godin and some other really cool startups, some other big brands too in your background. Is there a certain way you approach marketing?
1: Yeah, that's a big question. I like approaching marketing in a systematic and rigorous way. I think a lot of times people see marketing and it's a little bit of the process of illumination type of career for some people where it's like, well, I'm not great at math. So I'm not going to do finance or accounting. I'm not good at strategy. So I'm not going to do, you know, management consulting. So what's left? Marketing. I'm going to go into marketing. Right. So for me, marketing was always a really intentional choice. And I am fascinated and continue to be fascinated by the way that people make decisions and the things that influence decisions and the way that marketers can create win-win situations with the products and services that they're selling and the audiences and customers that would be glad to realize that you exist. So I think that um, that pairing, that finding those win-win situations is really, really exciting. And I think marketing as a field is changing so fast that, you know, instead of staying up to date with the latest tools and technology, which yes, that is important. That's that's one part, I think there's a bit too much focus on that and not enough focus on going back to basics with how do people make decisions? What sparks excitement in your customers? What are people confused by? How do you increase desire for people wanting to engage with you, wanting to engage with your product? All of those things haven't really changed in the last thousand years. People are you know, the way that they are. And going back to basics with understanding people, um, that's really where I go back.
0: Mm, I love that. I want to I talk a little bit about human behavior as well, and kind of what you've learned along the way. Because like you said, so much really hasn't changed with kind of how we operate. And yet there's so much depth and vastness to the way we can engage with humans now in terms of a marketing, a marketing way. But before we go there, I'm curious about like, like the genesis for you. Like, What was the first brand you remember making an impact on you?
1: Gosh, I've, I've loved brands forever. I think even as a kid going to the grocery store, um, and really as an adult too, going to the grocery store and just walking through every single aisle, looking at the cereal boxes, looking at silk soy milk and the positioning and new branding and new merchandising, new products, walking through the drugstore aisles and just seeing all the different products that are that that were coming out. And I think even then as a kid, there's something about tangible products that's very real, right? It's like it's physical, it's there. You can see that someone made this and someone's trying to sell it to you. You can buy it. So, my first job out of college was at the Gap headquarters in San Francisco. And I did a rotational program where I rotated through uh, Gap, Banana Republic, and Old Navy, the brands under the Gap um, Inc. umbrella, through some key retail functions from supply chain to merchandising to inventory planning, business analysis. And um, it was such a great fundamental business training for me, learning the business fundamentals of what does it take to produce this physical good and have it move through move through the supply chain, reach stores, reach customers? How do we know if people are wanting something and buying it? How do we look at both data that's qualitative and quantitative? So that was a really formative experience for me, was learning those business fundamentals at the Gap. And a lot of what I learned there, I still use today. After this one-year rotational program, I was a business analyst at Gap. And uh, thinking about promotional levers that speed up people buying things, you know, and, and slow that down. A lot of those leaders still apply with, you know, promotions, bundles, deadlines, uh, you know, reverse promotions of, you know, this price goes up next week and the week after all of those, there are internet versions of that. There are digital product versions of that, but learning the fundamentals at Gap with physical products was amazing training for understanding how a big company does things that, you know, as I've gone on in my career, I've gradually gone to smaller and smaller companies until I started my own last year, Maven. But seeing how things worked at a bigger company uh, was amazing because it gave me a lot of ideas about about how I wanted to run things and what I wanted to do differently and what I what I wanted to adopt from what worked well.
0: Mm, I love that. So now you're you know you're a year and change into you know co-founder, head of marketing at Maven. Uh, and I'm sure there's probably other hats you're wearing, slash this, slash that. So many slashes. <laughs> I know, I know, right? I'd like you to reflect on what's been your your best day in this past year and change at Maven. And I would also like to, to kind of hear your perspective on what's been the toughest day.
1: Well, this is probably the proximity effect and recency bias. I love biases and uh, cognitive biases. I don't love them. I love studying them, I should say. So just this week, we had our one-year Maven anniversary. And we had all 16, 17 team members hop on Zoom. We did a little celebration. And seeing that there were 17 people here working on uh, this amazing vision of democratizing online education, working at this company that, that I helped to start, was pretty incredible. Um, I remember a year ago, uh, last September, October, when Goggin, Biani, my co-founder and I, uh, our third co-founder hadn't even joined yet. He joined a couple of months later. So Skog and me, we were kicking around ideas on how we wanted to proceed with our go-to-market strategy. And I made a list of some angel investors that we wanted to reach out to, to see if they, they wanted to teach courses on our platform. And I remember sending out some of these texts uh, and getting, getting back some yeses. And so that was a really exciting moment too, because all of a sudden it went from, here's this idea, here's this hypothesis that we have of what we want to do with this company, of what we want to offer. But until someone says yes and commits and wants to work with you, uh, it's all still kind of a, an idea. And so when people, when some of these early instructors signed on, that was a really exciting moment too. Just knowing that, all right, it's game on. Like, let's do this. There are people that are now depending on us. Let's do this.
0: I love that. I love that. So how have you evolved now kind of as a leader over time? Like, what are you learning about now?
1: One way that I've evolved is I used to worry a lot more. I'm still pretty much a warrior. I think it's just kind of in my personality. But you know, one thing that I learned over the years is that the frenetic energy, the dark cloud kind of tangled up over your head is not helpful for anyone. It's not helpful for yourself, for your co-founders, for your team. And so one thing that I have learned over the years and continue to remind myself of is if there's something that I'm feeling tangled up about and I'm analyzing, I'm thinking about it and I'm not making any progress... I should do something in the physical world outside of my own head. And it sounds super simple, but, you know, before I used to, you know, agonize for days, weeks on this problem and just like, and it was all in my head, you know? And so even talking about it out loud to someone, even verbalizing, Hey, this is something that I'm working on and I don't see a path forward. A lot of times that in itself unblocks you. So worrying less um, is definitely something that, that, I've I've evolved on and changed over the last few years. I'd say another one is leaning more into my strengths as a leader. So I think the first 10 years of your career are about learning the business fundamentals and overcoming your weaknesses enough so that they don't hinder you from advancing in your career. So I used to be pretty disorganized. And if you're disorganized, you can't get your shit together to actually launch projects, bring your ideas to life, get promoted, right? Like your boss wants you to have Your ducks in a row. And so I spent time learning how to be organized, how to manage projects, how to look at numbers and read data. Those are not my favorite things. I'm not the best at those things, but spending the first decade getting good enough at things that allow you to progress in your career, I think is super important. And then I think the next 10 years is about leaning into your strengths and doubling down on the things that come naturally to you. So I believe a lot in playing games that I can win. And I don't want to, you know, go into an area, go into a function where for every 10 units of input, it's two units of output for me. Whereas for someone who's great at it for one unit of input, it's 10 units of output. Right. So for me, I think a lot about what comes naturally to me. What do I like doing? What could I think about for hours? What do I find myself doing more of anyway? You know, I think if you look if you look at your day, if you look at your week, we tend to do more of things that we like or spend longer doing things that we like. So there are already clues in your day about what you like doing, what you're great at, and then matching that with what the business needs. So that's the market demand piece of it. If it's just stuff that you like doing and, and you know, no one wants to hire you to do it, then you know, it's a hobby. But if there's market demand for that skill and you can use it to solve juicy, expensive problems for people, now you have a career and now you have a living.
0: Mm, I love that you know, along the same line, as like, how do you go about building like a marketing team, right? You're, you've got a team at Maven. I'm not sure how big it is, but what are some of the kind of early established priorities? You're, you're, I mean, you're in the first year, you just passed your first year anniversary. So can you talk about what goes into the kind of team you wanted to build in the first year and maybe moving forward? Uh, you said you're hiring and growing, which is awesome. And then talk about some of the established priorities, maybe short, mid, long.
1: We're still pre-product and pre-launch. So one thing that I loved that we did is even before our software was ready, we started launching courses. And this gave us a ton of information about what our customer, which are creators and instructors, subject matter experts who want to build courses, it gave us a ton of information about what this group of people actually found useful, what they found challenging, the parts that uh, they wish they didn't have to do, that our product could take over. So we've launched over 50 courses now on Maven's platform and we've had over 10 courses make over $100,000 in course revenue in only 2 to 3 weeks of running their course and dozens more uh, a ton more creators have made over $10,000 launching courses all of this is without even launching a product yet so one thing that we prioritized in the first year was having a team that are strategic generalists so people who are good enough at all the different skills that it takes to build a course and run a course business and help our instructors be able to do that. So that was one, a strategic generalist. The other was in, uh, investing in product. So building up our engineering team, building up our software developers who could bring our product vision to life. That was really important. Basically, we wanted to buy ourselves time for engineers to build a product with robust features. And in the meantime, The business side of the company, the operational side, which is my team, was helping instructors to build courses and teaching them how to build. So this two-pronged approach um, was really great because A, it allowed us to start making revenue, start getting traction, and start really learning about our customer and the problem that they wanted us to solve. Plus, it bought us time for engineering to focus purely on the product and, uh, and really make it great before we launch it to the
0: public. Hmm. So, you, there were courses created, but not they weren't available. They were available. Okay, they were available. Okay.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, so the product is the, the software tooling. So, we have a platform that makes it really easy for anyone to build courses, ranging from you know the end-to-end process with admissions, landing page, payment, a student portal. So, if you launch a course, you know your all of your students, hundred students can launch, can join, you know Jeremy's student portal and be able to access all the course materials. So we had an early version of that, but it wasn't anything to write home about. It was, it was pretty basic. It was just enough to work, but most of the value that we were giving to our instructors was the know-how and course building knowledge. Mm. And that's based on the last five to six years of me building core-based courses, building the Alt-MBA, working with a bunch of creators like Professor Scott Galloway, the co-founders of Morning Brew to design their course, uh, and really packaging up all of that knowledge which, you know, is not, it's not widely available because corporate courses are still so new. It's still such a nascent category. There's just not a lot of people who know how to do it. So we, we taught and are currently still teaching instructors how to build these amazing courses. And that's, that's the value that we're bringing up front. And as we go, our software is getting better and better
0: each week. Mm, I love it. What would you tell other CMOs and marketing leaders about how they really start on the journey of creating a more seamless, Better end to end customer experience?
1: One of my favorite frameworks is what I call eyes lighting up. So, what I mean there is when you talk to someone about your product, about your service, your offering, people will usually nod along politely because social norms dictate that they do so. And so, you know, you can tell when someone is actually interested in what you're saying because their eyes light up. They look viscerally and physically interested in what you're saying. And I think too often we as marketers, Get really in our own heads about the features, the benefits, uh, about the customer journey, different touch points, awareness versus conversion, top of funnel versus mid funnel versus bottom of funnel. And we lose sight of the customer's delight and visceral reactions about what we are doing. And so I think it's super important that we are not delusional and. Stay close to reality with how are people actually reacting to something? If people are not interested, it doesn't matter if your intent and your strategy was X, people are now reacting as Y. Like, Let's not ignore that. Let's, let's acknowledge that that is reality and then work with this new data that we have and constantly update our hypotheses about, about what's resonating and what's not. So I think that's, that staying close to realities is super, super important. I think the other thing is, mimicking reality as closely as possible. So, you know, usually if, if a marketer is creating a landing page, they want to walk you through it. So back when I was in cons- a consultant, um, my clients would always want to walk me through the landing page draft that they put together. My team now wants to walk me through, you know, the page that they put together. And I always tell them, don't give me any voiceover. If the customer is not getting voiceover, do not give me voiceover. This should be a standalone unit that I can look at and get everything I need because that is the way that the customer is going to look at it, right? So with mimicking reality, it's let's look at things the way that customers will look at them, not give ourselves any additional buffer from things that are poorly explained in writing or stuff that doesn't make sense. If you have to tell me, oh, click that thing next, that's bad. I should know that I should click that thing. So mimicking reality as closely as possible, I think gives you much better data about how people are going to react.
0: Mm, love that. That's awesome. Eyes lighting up and mimicking reality. It's awesome. When you think of 360 degree marketing, like what comes to mind?
1: 360 degree marketing. I think of end to end marketing. I think end to end marketing is more and more important, especially as the world starts moving faster and uh, competitors are moving faster. What I mean by end to end marketing is one person having the skills and capacity to be able to take an idea from a nub of a vague insight into something that is launched. And so what I mean by this is if you have two people, let's say marketer A and marketer B, marketer A is like, hey boss, I think we should start doing LinkedIn videos to talk about our product and educate our audience. Um, and in order to do that, they think, okay, well, you know, I need to find a copywriter who can help draft a script to do a, a test video. Um, and then I need to, to tap you know, this other person who can help film. And then I need to tap another person who can help edit because I don't know how to, how to edit. And then I need someone who understands social so that we can post this. Okay, so that's, that's person A. Um, hint, this is bad. Okay, so that's person A. Um, person B is like, hey boss, I think we should do LinkedIn learning videos to start, start sharing our message. So same idea. And instead the person drafts a one-page script, takes out their phone, holds their phone in front of them, starts recording the script themselves, and then edits it in iMovie and then posts it on a fake account in LinkedIn so people can actually see what it looks like if it shows up in their feed, shows it to their boss and says, here's what this would look like. What do you think? If you like this, I can go ahead and make five more, check in with you to make sure that the content is you know, going the direction that you want it to go in, and then we can create a cadence to post this. So marketer B is an end-to-end marketer because they were able to have this idea and then turn it into reality in a turnaround time of like two days. So if you, if you need to rely on other people, multiple other people to get your idea, to create you know, V1, an MVP of your idea, that's way too slow and way too cumbersome. And also those people are not gonna be able to do your idea the way that you envisioned. Whereas if you have the skills to bring something to life, you're able to move much faster and um, represent your idea in higher fidelity. So that's what I call end-to-end marketing. And I think it's gonna be increasingly more important as, you know, headcount gets smaller on teams, budgets are getting smaller and people just need to move faster in general.
0: Mm, I love that. Yeah, you talked about in previous things before the rise of this end-to-end marketer, which is what you're speaking about now. And I think I'm seeing that as well, having these conversations with CMOs across the Fortune 500 and seeing kind of who are the types of marketers they look for and the types of teams they begin to build based on the stage of their company. And, you know, you talked about kind of this idea of the, Navy SEAL marketer, right? Or this kind of idea of like how these marketers can handle so many things. As a marketing leader, building teams and looking for the looking for this more of a Navy SEAL marketer, how are you finding them and really seeing like, hey, this is a person that can take something end to end? Are you just assigning projects to people and saying, hey, here's a project, take me through it and seeing how they operate? Or because it seems like it's finding finding this type of marketer could be challenging depending on the use case and what you need. So kind of talk us through that and your thoughts on that. How are you finding them? And some examples of kind of how folks, other leaders might, might find them and test them.
1: I think having this Navy SEAL-like mentality is something that you can see in someone's background, not necessarily their resume, which shows their formal job experiences, but from their side projects, from their internet presence. Are they launching you know, side projects? Or do they have side hustles? Are they writing their own personal newsletter and blog? Even from something like someone's newsletter, you get a ton of information. You get a sense of the person's general aesthetic and design sense. You can tell their sense of judgment. You can tell the kinds of topics that they write about and how well they execute. Um, So you you get a ton of insight into the way that this person thinks and whether they're able to have an idea and then execute well on it. So I think looking at signs and signals and clues that the person has launched and, and created things on the side, um, outside of work, especially. Um, and it could be, you know, volunteering somewhere, right? Like, and, and the things that they've created for, for volunteering. So that's one. The other is competency-based hiring. I'm a huge proponent of competency-based hiring. And what that is, is not necessarily looking at the person's background and previous work experiences, but looking at the actual work output that the person has produced. So, take home projects are a great example of this. Asking a candidate to walk through how they would do something, the actual literal steps. You know, one of my pet peeves is when someone says a big idea and they're a great talker, it sounds, you know, sounds legit. And then when you ask them how they would actually bring this to life, it's super vague and it's clear that they don't actually know how to bring it to life. It's a little bit like that South Park episode where one of the characters says, you know, step one, this great idea. Step two, question mark. Step three, profit, you know? And it's like, okay, I'm pretty sure step two is the most important part of this process. And I want to know what is your step two? What are the things that you are doing to make this actually work? So I'm, I, I love home projects. Um, there's been many times when, you know, I, I've had great initial interviews with candidates been really bullish about the person and then giving them a take on project and was just blown away at, at how um, high level the, the project was and how it didn't go into the amount of depth and rigor that I would have expected and that I need this candidate to be able to have.
0: Mm, I love that. You worked with Seth Godin at Alt-MBA. What was that experience like? And, and what did you really learn from him that really helped kind of lead you to Maven?
1: I learned so much from Seth. So trying to distill it into a soundbite is pretty much impossible. <laughs> we sat 20 feet apart for three years in, you know, a small office in Hastings on Hudson, New York, you know, and, and our HQ team was five people in that office. We had, we had you know, a lot more people remotely, but, you know, every conversation that I had with Seth, I left learning something new and we had thousands. And so uh, I'm trying to think, you know, how, do, how do I summarize uh, some key lessons? I think, I think high level working with Seth taught me to be A lot more strategic. It taught me to be strategic in my bones and my blood. I thought I was strategic before and I thought I shipped quickly before, but the speed in which we shipped at the Alt MBA at Seth HQ was pretty wild. And it wasn't just doing work quickly, it was doing high quality work quickly. So, you know, most people acknowledge that there is a trade off between speed and quality. And I agree, but the the amount that we were able to push both to their limits was really, really impressive. And you know, one example of that is launching projects. So, you know, whether it's a you know a, a one-week blogging challenge. So that was that was one project I launched, or uh, a Udemy course that I built for Seth, or a three-day in-person event, or launching Seth on Instagram, all of these in themselves could have taken 10 times longer than they did. Um, but we were able to act really quickly and and launch well. Because the standard internally for uh, the work was was really really high, and I think a lot of times people think like move fast and break things or you know just ship it. There's this undercurrent of oh well you know it doesn't have to be great, you can just ship it, right? But the the reason why most things that we launched were sold out, and most things that that Seth does that the ultimate does. Um, has such a, a rabid fan base is because we actually had a really rigorous standard internally for what we would launch. We vetted things really, really carefully. We thought about who is this for? What specific audience is this for? Why would they want to do this? Why is it beneficial to them? What is this for? What bigger goal are we trying to achieve? How is this tactic helping us to achieve that? What is the hard part of this? So, you know, The hard part is usually not your initial idea of of what you think it is. If the hard part is basically, if this thing doesn't work, this whole thing wouldn't work, right? What are the bottlenecks and things on the critical path that need to need to happen? How do we design this thing so that the threshold for it working isn't an egregious number of people? So if you plan an event and you know you need five thousand people to show up for it to be a success, it's your first time doing it and you have a small audience, that's probably not great. But if you design it in a way where as long as 20 people show up, this can be a great experience. And yet it can scale to thousands if needed, right? So thinking, thinking flexibly about how do we design this to give ourselves the most leeway and chance of success, these are just some of the questions that we would ask. I have a, a, an article on rigorous thinking where I list you know 20-some questions that managers can ask their direct reports. To prompt rigorous thinking, but but essentially this, this entire idea of rigorous thinking, that was what we lived at the Alt MBA. And I've really taken that with me to Maven and uh in every situation that I'm in, um, especially when launching new new ideas, new projects, when there's just so many variables and you need to think strategically about how you want to deploy resources.
0: Mm. What's a campaign or initiative that you worked on? If you kind of zoom out entire career, like what's something that you worked on campaign initiative that you're most proud of?
1: I think looking back, launching the Alt MBA was probably the, the thing up to date that I'm most proud of. Launching the Alt MBA and then launching Maven, I think, are are tied. Maven is still kind of in progress. We're only in our first year, so so I'll talk about the Alt MBA because it's kind of it's a, a chapter that's that's wrapped up in my life. I think Alt MBA was it felt like a huge bet at the time, and I was skeptical about it going in because you know at the time, and even still now, really, you know six years later, the dominant form of online learning is self-paced video courses. And, you know, in 2014, when Seth and I started kicking around the Alt-MBA launched eventually in 2015, we basically decided to do the opposite of self-paced courses. So instead of it being affordable, you can do it anytime, you know, a bunch of people can do it, uh, there's no application. We thought, what if we made it expensive, at least expensive enough. So people felt, you know, they had skin in the game. And there was an application. We curated people, and you had to do it with start and end dates. Um, And we were bringing people online entirely, bringing a bunch of strangers together online. And at the time, Zoom and Slack were just becoming to be popular themselves. Like I remember writing Google Docs explaining how to sign up on Slack and what Slack was and how to use Zoom. Right. And now it's kind of like everyone, you know, a lot of people in our circles know what it is. So with Ultimate, it. I was skeptical going in that, it, that you know, will this work? Can we bring strangers online and create an experience that is worth thousands of dollars in tuition and have people leaving feeling like they would do it again and that they would want to tell their friends and that it was completely worth the money and not only worth the money but that it was a steal. like that was the bar and, uh, and it worked. Uh, and so you know even even after the, the first day, the first week, seeing students come together on Zoom and, you know, in grid view and connecting with each other, creating their own Slack channels, meeting in ways that we, you know, didn't even tell them to meet and just kind of like going off and doing their own thing. It was so rewarding to see that and have the chance to turn that into an institution and build it into the company that it is today was super, super rewarding and really, uh, really led to me starting Maven. Hmm. So um, I think I think that the genesis of the Alton BA uh, is is definitely something that I'm I'm super proud of.
0: So for our audience who is is not super familiar with Maven, just tell us a little bit about the company and some of the unique things that you're doing there.
1: Yeah. So Maven is a platform that makes it really easy for creators to build, launch, and host their core based courses. So core based courses are online courses that are a mixed of a mix of live synchronous activities, and also async learning. So if you if you imagine a Udemy course on design, you might watch 15 videos about different design principles. But if you took a core-based course about design, you are uh, maybe hearing a, a short lecture about, let's say, contrast. And then you're actually designing a flyer or a social media graphic that utilizes the concept of contrast, of white space, of balance. And then you're sharing it with Fellow designers who are in the course with you, uh, let's say over over a you know one week period, and you're critiquing each other's work, and you might have coaches that are giving you feedback on your designs, and you might have an instructor who picks a couple, a couple designs that students made to give some some feedback to the bigger group. So it's a lot more interactive. It's a lot more about doing as opposed to passively you know passively learning. It's it's learning by doing. And right now, if you want to teach your expertise. So if you're a designer, you want to teach a course on design. Uh, we have courses on crypto, leadership, watercolor painting, yoga, product management, coding, coding on Ethereum, tons of different topics. So if you're an expert and you want to teach your topic, creating a core-based course is a super cumbersome process. You're basically cobbling together a bunch of tools ranging from Teachable, Podia, uh, Slack or Circle for community, Heartbeat Chat. You're using Zoom for live broadcasts and you're using email to say, hey everyone, Thursdays at six. Like, you know, here's a Zoom link. And meanwhile, tons of students are asking, who's my, you know, my assigned group for the week? Who's my coach? Where's that link again? Where's that recording again? What time are we meeting again? So it's a, it's a just a really, really cumbersome process. And Maven, our mission is to make it really easy for you to, to be able to teach your course by having a, a one-stop shop for you to, to manage everything that you need about your course. So that's kind of the short-term vision. Long-term vision is we want to democratize education and unbundle higher education. And the vision there is that, you know, by making making core-based courses more accessible for experts everywhere to be able to teach, we're going to open up access so that a bunch of people who are not traditional professors are able to teach. So you might not be, you know, a lecturer, you know, an adjunct professor somewhere or a tenure professor, but you have 10 years of experience in your field. You have, you know, a, a decade of of hands on operational experience, and you have a lot to share. And a lot of times, people would rather learn from someone like Lenny Rachitsky, who's an early product manager at, at Airbnb, and he now makes a living writing a Substack newsletter. You know, there's a lot of value in learning product from someone like Lenny as opposed to product from a professor who, you know, the last time they did product management was 25 years ago at uh, PacBell or I don't know Comcast or something, yeah. right? And so, so you know, bringing this new new generation of digitally native professors onto the internet making it really easy for them to teach and then therefore democratizing who gets to actually have access to all these people you know before if you weren't part of Lenny's crew or or you know in sf it's hard to learn from lenny and now you can take his course whether you're you know across the sea in in uh, london or you know in nigeria or in new york you're able to access lenny's knowledge
0: mm. So talk a little bit about this idea of content being, I mean, it it feels endless today, right? Content feels endless. There's more than 720,000 pieces of content uploaded on YouTube every day. How can marketers stop feeding the content monster and really pivot to a model that just drives more monetization for them?
1: I think it's, it's, it's hard to stop feeding the content monster, for sure. So there are some channels where you kind of have to feed the content monster. So podcasts, for example, uh, newsletters. So both Pomp and Lenny have said that you know if they don't record their podcast every week or write the next week's newsletter, it doesn't go out. And so there's there's not a ton of leverage. There's leverage in the sense that they write it once and um, thousands of listeners and readers can can access it over time. But in terms of leverage on their time, it's very transactional feeling. So I think... Core based courses are, are one example of something that, that is more leveraged in that you want to build an asset. So any kind of asset, not just courses, but any asset where you can build something once and any time that you want to reuse it, it gets easier and easier. That's an example of not, you know quote unquote, feeding the content monster. So even something like documentation. So if you are a marketer, and this is kind of internally, but if you're a marketer and you're having to explain something a bunch of times to your team... If you write documentation about it, you can then share that with them, right? And that's, that's something that they can just use over and over. So in the same way, a course, uh, you build it once. eighty percent of the effort is up front. You have to create the content, the curriculum, the exercises projects, you have to design the thing. But once you design it, every time that you want to run your course, if you run it you know twice a year, four times a year, ten times a year, you know, Pomp launched his course uh, six months ago, and it's already run six, six cohorts. Every single time you do it, it gets easier and easier. And you know that's, that's that 20% of effort, right? So it's 80% up front, 20% remaining. And, and really thinking about leverage things, assets that, that you can create that uh, your customers can engage with that don't require you to start from scratch every single time. That's a, a huge way to continue making impact without um, needing to scale up your effort every single time.
0: Mm-hmm. I love this tweet by you where you stress that the era of like and subscribe is dead. And and it's all about building relationships, you know, and hyper-specific followings. Why is like and subscribe dead? Like
1: and subscribe is dead because people used to need hundreds of thousands of followers to be able to make a living online. So if you are a YouTuber or an Instagram influencer, in order to get brand sponsorships that are meaningful, brands want to see a huge following. If you have 5,000 followers, a brand isn't going to want to sponsor you. They're not going to get in front of enough eyeballs. Um, And if you have a smaller following, you're not going to make enough money from ads either. And merch sales, T-shirts, posters, stickers, socks, uh, you're not going to be able to sell enough socks to be able to make a living. So luckily things are changing. Things are shifting so that if you are a creator these days, you can make a pretty healthy living from a smaller audience of true fans who love what you do and want it, want to engage with you and are willing to invest more in, in your content because they find it so valuable. So one good example of, of this is you know if you're selling if you have a, a course on Teachable or a course on udemy and it's ten dollars, you're gonna have to sell a huge volume of courses to be able to to, to make good revenue there. But if your course is thousand dollars, you don't have to sell that many right Like you can have a, a smaller cohort of 15 people. Who really want to learn from you? Your diehard fans, each paying a thousand dollars. The alt MBA is four thousand five hundred dollars. Rite of passage is between an online course is between four to six thousand dollars. We have a ton of courses also that are in the several hundred dollar range. So you know more more accessible price point, given the amount of access that you have to to your peers, your community, etc. Uh, but the point is, with a more premium product, you can have a smaller audience and uh, add a lot of value for people who want that value, as opposed to a tiny bit of value to a bunch of people.
0: Mm -hmm. So so some would say that, you know, building a loyal following and creating a community of actively engaged users that drives retention, it sustains growth, it's difficult. So how can creators really nail this transition from content to community?
1: I think one important thing to think about in this transition is... Acknowledging that content is not the end all be all. And I think a lot of us logically or intellectually might understand that. But you know, I talk to a lot of creators, and when they're building their courses, sometimes they'll feel self-conscious that they're charging this premium amount. And the first instinct is, well, let me add more content. Let me add another module on this. Let me add, you know, a couple more hours of lecture on this. Let me add, you know, more articles on this. And very rarely do I hear students say at the end of taking a course, gosh, I wish there had been more lecture. That pretty much never happens. What they do say is, I wish there was more of a chance to meet other people. I wish we had longer time to share our ideas and get feedback. I wish there were more time debating how to put this idea into practice and hearing other people's point of view. So you know, the doing piece is really what people are craving. And that's the community piece. People want to meet other people who are on a similar journey, who are fellow designers, fellow people in sales, fellow marketers, fellow CMOs, right? Like if you think about what's scarce, people pay for what's scarce. So content is no longer scarce. And and we're, we're surrounded by it. And there's a lot of great free content too, right? Like, it's not just like, oh, there's a lot of content and shitty. It's like, no, there's a lot of amazing content and a lot of it is free. So if you want to differentiate yourself You need to offer something that is scarce and communities are scarce. Having a chance to meet other people who are fellow HubSpot users or they're a fellow solo marketer, right? Like a community of, you know, if you're the only marketer in your company, let's say, or like marketing is a smaller presence in a company, I could see that being an amazing community. Like there are so many challenges if you are, you know, the marketer in a company, right? Or let's say, you know, a community of um, CMOs. From uh, you know a certain kind of company or a certain industry, certain vertical, et cetera, yeah, so so this idea of community of bringing people together, introducing them to each other, that is scarce because it's hard for people to do that on their own. You can, like in the ultimate, we used to say, you know if you wanted to to find ninety nine other people on the internet and bring them together and like do this this one month thing together, you totally could. like there's nothing stopping people from doing that, but it's it's a lot of work, and most people. Are too busy and and if you create this space and you say like hey come come here this is there's cool stuff happening here people are going to want to check it out and if they get a lot of value they're going to want to tell their friends.
0: Mm. You wrote an interesting piece for Inc where you argued that demographics could be constraining customers. Why should marketers quote unquote forget demographics? Like what tools should they be focusing on if they aren't defining their target audience?
1: I'm a big proponent of psychographics. So psychographics are actually taking a step back, demographics are things that you can see on the outside. So age, gender, location, profession, yearly income, right? So these are things you can see about a person on the outside. Psychographics are things about people on the inside, the way that they think, their lifestyle, their preferences, things that they judge and say like, oh, that's tacky or, oh, that's cool. Basically for anything that you think is tacky, there are people out there who think it's amazing and a sign of great taste. And for anything that you think is great, there are people who don't, you know, I think cruises are a great example of that. I think marketers should be less judgmental overall. I think that's a sign of a great marketer, or someone who, uh, you know, we talk about empathy, but this is like extreme empathy where, you know, if you personally think cruises are, you know, you stub your noses at them and think like, oh, like, I like, you know, more, more authentic adventures or whatever. To get yourself to think, why would someone love cruises? And why would that be amazing? Why does a certain kind of customer love cruises? If you want to market to that person, you should be able to, like that's the amount of extreme empathy versus being like, oh no, like I'm above that, right? So, you know, it's kind of of a tangent, but I think psychographics are so important here because it's unclear from the outside if someone would like cruises or not. It's unclear from the outside if someone would like McDonald's. Like you might think, oh, McDonald's, like that must be for people who are on a budget, who don't care about health food. Not true. There are a lot of white collar professionals making great income who freaking love McDonald's
0: fries or chicken nuggets. Warren Buffett. Right. I think Warren Buffett goes there, I think every day. Yeah. Okay,
1: exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, exactly. Right. Like, So if you only looked on the outside, you'd be like, oh no, like Warren Buffett, he must shop at Whole Foods or get vegetables delivered. Right. But, but looking at psychographics helps you, helps you see uh, the way that people think, especially about your category. So someone might be you know, uh, of, in a certain income bracket on, on the outside, you might think, oh, they have disposable income. They must love my app. My app is only $5, right? There are so many people who refuse to pay even 99 cents for an app. And yet they are paying six fifty dollars 50 for um, a cookies and cream frappuccino every other day at Starbucks. So just because they have the money doesn't mean that they want to spend it with you. And if you just look at demographics, you miss all of that rich context and you might spend time trying to cater to the wrong person. So that's really the biggest risk is like that you spend time, you know, trying to appeal to someone who would never have bought from you in the first place. Whereas if you just looked at their psychographics, you would have seen and understood, hey, this person thinks a certain way. They don't value my category, right? Why don't I go spend time with someone who, who does think that the problem I'm solving is a hairy problem that they want to pay someone to solve.
0: Mm. So Storytelling is an integral part of you know, every marketer's portfolio, certainly for creators that, are, that you're working with too. And just how I love kind of your thoughts on storytelling, like what would you share to a marketing leader or with them around storytelling? How do you view it? How's it changing? And then you could also mention, of course, how it relates to creators as well.
1: I think the old way of thinking about storytelling was thinking about this really structured narrative arc the 12-step hero's journey or eight steps, whatever. There's there's a lot of steps there. So it's like full-length hero's journey, beginning, middle, end, part one, two, three. And, and we think like we need at least five minutes to tell a story, maybe longer. Uh, but a lot of times your customers don't have even five minutes. And thinking about storytelling in this limited way is, is not enough anymore. I think of storytelling as anything that you do say the way that you show up the way that you look the way that you say something right everything is a story so if you only rely on the content of your words to communicate your story then you're limited to you're limited to just you know really small levers but if you think about storytelling as anything that you are doing and saying like that is all part of your story the way that you show up is part of your story that's a much more realistic, I think, way of how people are judging you, right? Like, and, and storytelling is really a way of conveying uh, your message and connecting with your audience, right? And so you want to know if people are judging you. You want them to judge you in the way you want them to judge you, not, not you know, negatively. And so you want to think about what are all the visceral clues that people have. And so, you know, for something like branding, like awesome, if your website looks amazing and every pixel is perfect and your newsletters all look amazing. But if you're if your salespeople are showing up on video calls and it's dimly lit and blurry uh, and they look sketchy, their audio quality is terrible. Like that's part of the story. And that part of the story is saying that this brand, like, I don't know, like might not have their act together or like doesn't really pay attention to details or they don't have um, great taste, right? Like they're not thinking about, about branding in a holistic way. Right. So there's, there's all these subconscious clues that inform People about what you are like, and the more that you acknowledge that these people are judging you on these clues, the more you can control them, and proactively uh, address and uh, use those levers in a way that benefits you. And I think that's all part of your story.
0: I love it. This is awesome. I, I keep telling uh, the producers, I'm like, I need a mic drop button. There have been some amazing mic drop moments. I want one of those mic drop buttons, like mic drop, mic drop. Um, it's fantastic, Wes. This is the lightning round uh, brought to you by Salesforce. Uh, We bring marketing and engagement together So, learn more about salesforce.com slash marketing. Are there any podcasts that are inspiring you lately?
1: You know, this is kind of embarrassing, but I don't listen to that many podcasts. And the only reason I say that, before you you think I'm I'm an uncultured brute (laughs) is because I'm a much faster reader. So I like reading content. Um, I like just visually seeing it on a page because I can reread certain things, go back. Whereas with audio, it's kind of like, the, the speed of the audio is, is, is a limiting factor. So I don't have that many off the top of my head to share.
0: How about a book, a book or two inspiring you lately?
1: Yes. High Output Management. Um, I think that's what it's called. It's the book by, by Andy Grove, the former CEO of Intel.
0: Yep. Um, okay.
1: Amazing. I am reading that now and I cannot remember the last time that I felt like a book Was so worth its weight in gold. Like literally every every line has has earned its its real estate in the book. Like they don't write books like this anymore, right? Like now, like any wahoo can write a book. Like as as someone who might write a book, it's like okay, like I'm one of those wahoos. Like whatever. But but you know, it's this is back in the day when books were so tightly edited, and there was such a high bar that by the time it went to print, it was you know it was it's just brilliant. Um, so that I think I think that one is such so worth a read.
0: I love it. Okay. Last question. If we have a panel on this show, you and two other marketing leaders, who would you want on the panel with you?
1: Oh, this is hard. I would probably say Alex Lieberman from Morning Brew and Sean Purry. He has a writing course on Maven. And I want to add that neither of these people are marketers by trade. So- and this is on purpose. I think some of the best marketers don't even call themselves marketers. And you know what? I'm going to add David Perell in there. So it's going to be, we're going to add three people. It's going to be fun. I
0: love it. I love it.
1: And all three of them would are not marketers by training, but have marketing in their blood. And I think that marketers can learn more from people who don't necessarily call themselves marketers, but clearly have a marketing instinct and are very good at it. And that opens up a whole new world of people where you can get inspiration.
0: I love that. So you said, is it Puri? Sean Puri? Sean Puri,
1: P-U-R-I. Okay, cool. And then David Carrell, um, and Alex Lieberman.
0: Beautiful. Awesome. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Wes. This has been an incredible conversation, truly. I mean, the, your view and perspective in the world that you're, you're coming from and playing in now is profound. Thank you for, for making time today.
1: Thank you. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Really, really appreciate you taking the time and um, all your questions were a lot of fun. So thanks.